Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending the 10th of February. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9, broadcast live from Melbourne. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear from beloved food and culture correspondent Michael Harden, offers insights into new trends in wine bars and pubs in Melbourne. We also speak to local actor Zen McGrath about his role in The Sun, alongside a stellar cast featuring Hugh Jackman and Laura Dern. Elizabeth McCarthy reviews Cold Enough for Snow by Jessica Au. Maddie Miller shares the story of Budge Bim while I grapple with owning too many lamps. Cinephile Megan McHugh looks at the overlooked blockbuster Babylon and Irving Majumda gives us a spooky real estate update, but we kick off with Nat's attempts to get organised, being thwarted as she attempts to buy a diary. Triple R. So I made a concerted effort or I, I kind of yeah, decision this year that I would commit to um, diarising my life, but all online, okay? Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I just thought, no, let's just keep it as all in one spot. I have attempted with um, diaries before and I've just never really maintained one. But after starting this job, you know, going to different meetings, I have, I'm trying different kind of methods of how I kind of retain all the different information. So I thought, oh, maybe like a diary would be a great idea. Excellent idea. So yesterday I was walking past like a a smaller kind of supply store near where I lived and saw a a nice kind of brand that I like. So I went in to inquire about their their range of 2023 diaries mm. and was almost laughed out of the store. Why? I'm baffled by their poor attitudes. I mean, I mean, they were kind of, they did try and relate because they themselves had found themselves in a similar situation, but they were like, what are you doing? You've missed the boat. No. On, yes. On the contrary, now is the optimal time to, <gasps> to pr- proceed with your diarisation. Yeah, but they're out of, like, there's limited... Uh, Diaries available. But they're often on sale at this point because because of that very false assumption that it's too late, the the boat has sailed and they're just trying to get rid of all their stock. Yeah, I was like, oh, wow. Like, I understand that people buy them in uh, at the end of 2022. Like, the year is wrapping up. People kind of buy their diary in advance, making sure they get the one they want. But I didn't think February was obscene. Mm, he, he said, yeah, wow, like you're quite late. And then he said he had also left it late last year. Like he learned his lesson and he was laughed out of the store, he said, in so, March. So he thought that he would pass along that awful experience to you. Yeah. And then um, his colleague came out and they kind of chimed in. They were like, yeah, God, no, too late. Um, and then they proposed that maybe I could make my own in a notebook. <laughs> I'm like, really? What? February? But, Have well, we already gone to that? Well, I mean, there's, a, num- come to that? there's a number of points we can raise. I mean, certainly the the bullets journal method is available to everybody that you can use in a, a notebook of any type. Yes. But I think that, Daniel, I'm sensing a shared outrage at the attitude. Yeah, absolutely. I was in a uh, shopping centre recently and I saw a massive stall in the thoroughfare of diaries, 2023 diaries. And so that gave me anxiety. A, because I don't have one and I should. Yes. B, I'm like, well, it's getting to the end of Jan. Like, they've got all this stock and they can't. How are you supposed to repurpose it? Like, (laughs) for all the Gregorian enthusiasts out there, (laughs) it changes. The completists. (laughs) Yeah. They need one, but yeah, of course. Yeah. 
so so I thought there's there's a glut of of diaries, and now I'm hearing that no. It's well, the I mean, I went to this was yeah a smaller store, not a chain or anything like mm. that, mm. and this particular brand was quite nice, and I suppose I was I mean. I had tr- looked at buying a diary at the end of 22, but I was overwhelmed by the options. What do you want? Do you want um, a day to a page? Do you want two days to a page and the weekend down the bottom? Do you want A6? Do you want A4? Do you want A0? Mm. Do you want Gregorian? <laughs> do you want the Julian? I don't know. Well, but indeed. I only want the months with 30 days. I had to walk out. I was like, this is for another day. This is huge. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just feeling particularly disappointed by the service that you received. Yeah. I feel like had you stepped into another establishment, they would have been a little I bit more confident. Like you got um, sort of mechanic treatment in a stationery store. <laughs> yeah. Look, in their defence, they really were trying to relate with me and share their experience and, and also kind of to leave a lasting impression on me so I mm. wouldn't do this again. So, What is the uh, what is popular now? Is it, the, I mean, you mentioned two days to a page. Yeah. That seems like a pretty good... Yeah. Format. I think so. I think a day to a page is overwhelming, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it, if you don't fill it, you look, I mean, what's like, going on? Yeah. Like, you're like, oh, God, I need a. And, but you said earlier, did I hear the phrase online? You're going to start a diary online? Oh, no. Like, meaning um, kind of Google Calendar, stuff like that. Oh, I see. So, what's the word for it where you kind of align your various. You kind sync. Of, you sync your. Cows with mm. your, like, yeah, and your was this journal. intended to be journal slash diary or purely organisational? Very good. Uh, um, this was purely organisational. Okay. I have been indulging in some journaling. Mm. So that was another thing for – I started actually at the end of 22, uh, but I've been trying to do the morning pages where you just get up and you kind of um, like stream of consciousness, write that. Is it when would you do that after the show? No, well, I haven't been doing it. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can start Since doing we a journal show. show. Yeah, I'm a bit journaling now. <laughs> as I, I mean, write. I genuinely thought that this kind of, and I think Picasso said something like this. Obviously, what we're not doing is yep. creating multi million dollar paintings, but the, yeah. that the, 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 there's something about being a breakfaster which is, is in and of itself a journal. Isn't it? Yeah, this is stream of consciousness right now. <laughs> Should anyone be hearing it? I'm not sure, but are they? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's been scary in itself. And the one thing, the one peril with I've found with journaling is that I'm petrified I'm going to leave it everywhere, and I did. I left it at my old work. Oh, so good. Journal with caution. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. <laughs> It's time to sink our teeth into a food interlude on Breakfasters with gourmet avant-gardist Michael Harden. Morning, Michael. Good morning. Now, you are always out and about. Uh, I am. Where where are you taking us in this new year? Um, sort of, yeah, it's, it's a good time of year for me to be sort of looking at, you know, the general, like, lay of the land with restaurants at the moment because it's like we're, we're moving into reviewing season and I review for a couple of different publications and this is a time where we uh, go out and see lots of restaurants at a time. So, you know, it's sort of like it gets to the point, like... It's very difficult to complain about my job, but sometimes you have to complain <laughs> to other food reviewers about, oh, my God, I've got to go out to dinner again. It's like to this, you know, f- 
three-hat restaurant that it's sort of like I've got to put up with one more time. Mm. But, uh, but it is a really good time to summarise stuff. And it's sort of like what I've been seeing in Melbourne, which I think is interesting sort of reflecting on the past couple of years and what's happened to the industry, is that like, the thing that's happening in Melbourne is wine bars and like really interesting wine bars opened by young operators that have got experience in sort of more starry restaurants. You know, they're kind of, they've been sommeliers at, at top-rated restaurants and that sort of stuff, are going into a more sort of small um, more compact sort of way of, of um, running a business. And, uh, you know, they're doing things like... And it's, I, I, it's a trend I really, really like because it's like you go into these wine bars, they've got short menus and they've got really tightly curated wine lists, so it might be sort of 150 bottles of wine on the list, whereas, you know, some of the bigger restaurants, you know, you've got these encyclopedic tomes with 3,000, 4,000 bottles of wine and, and it just sort of... If you're not a complete cork dork mm. then you you know it's sort of like you can just get lost or if you are at dinner with a cork dork that you lose them for the next half hour as they're like chin stroking and kind of like you know flipping through and talking do we go for the 78 or the 82 <laughs> it's like just order the bottle of wine um but uh yeah so there's some some good ones that have that have opened recently um there's a really great one in um, in richmond called clover and uh by a couple of couple of guys one of them who also already has got runs on the board with some good wine bars he's got the moon in collingwood and he's got the alps in paran so and he's um teamed up with a very good chef um charlie snadden wilson who and their kitchen there it's all um wood fire and uh so he's cooking everything over wood and um and it's like you know fermented stuff and uh so it's like a very small menu probably maybe about 12 items on the menu. Um, you can either, you know, you go in for a little snack or you can team together like most of the menu and it'll, it'll make your full meal. And then you've got... But you've got somebody like... Then you've got a list of wine there that they've already curated for you. So it's probably two, three pages. And so instead of having to wade through things or sort of worry about everything, you know you can go in there and trust these people that they've already sort of winnowed out all the shit. <laughs> and uh, so you can, you know, there'll be some really good things. And, of course, you know, people have their biases, like they have everywhere, like, you know, similar to a bookstore, really. It's sort of like, you know, you go into a particular bookstore and you know that they have you know, stocking authors that you like. Well, these are stocking winemakers that you like. So some of them will be more on the sort of natural wine end of things and some of them have more classic stuff. So it's um, it's like it's a, it's a trend I really, really like. And I think it's sort of reflective of how we've come out of the pandemic. Um, you know, I think sort of rising food costs, you know, kind of inflation, everything, everybody's got less money. So these places are very cool. They're sort of like, you know, they're all well designed, that sort of stuff. But you can also really keep a handle on how much money you're spending. And it sounds like there's a real opportunity to share the meal as well and discuss it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's sort of like it's very much that kind of, you know, communal sort of way of eating and drinking, which I really like. And um, and it just gives you flexibility. And I think, you know, of course, there's always going to be restaurants that, you know, have have the traditional experience. But I think there's more and more of these places coming around. Like there's another place in... um, in North Fitzroy, it used to be the North Fitzroy Star, um, uh, which was a pub in the oh, back streets yeah. there. You know, it's sort of like it's got that angular sort of look. And yep. most of the pub's been turned into townhouses, but they've just taken the tip of the sort of angle. It's like a triangular bit at the end of the building. And they've got downstairs a little wine bar and a bottle shop. And then upstairs got a 28-seat 
dining room up there. So you can kind of have snacks and drinks downstairs or you can go up and sort of do a bit more stuff up there. And, uh, again, the food, like, shorter menu. The guy that's cooking in there is um, more renowned for cooking meat, but it's sort of like meat is sort of a minor thing on this menu. It's like there's more sort of a little bit of seafood, a lot of vegetables, you know, that that kind of stuff. And you go... And the wine, there's no wine list upstairs, so when you order wine, you just top pottle toddle downstairs and uh, have a look around on the on the shelves, chat to the people that are in the bottle shop down there, grab a bottle of wine, and you can take it upstairs. They charge you like 20% extra or something like that to, to drink in. But, but that's another that. social element to the experience. Absolutely. It sounds yeah. like a physical RSA as well, having to go down, mm-hmm. get the wine and bring it back mm-hmm. up the stairs. Mm-hmm. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> keep keep tabs on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, well, you want to be reasonably fit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's that one. There's, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of ones that have been around for a while, Wax Flower in, in Brunswick, which yeah. is a fabulous um, sort of music bar and it's wine incredible. bar, you know, sort of equal equal weight given to the music as to the, the wine um, and really good food there as well. So the other thing I think that's happening as well is that the um, there's uh, seems to be a lot more pub action happening, um, renovating pubs, sort of like... So I think it's, there's, you know, there's a couple of this, you know, the Mount Erica over in Armidale has done... They've done a really beautiful job renovating that. Um, the railway in uh, Brunswick is another one that they've done. And, you know, there's quite a few around Bobby Peels in North Melbourne that they're... They've done beautiful jobs of renovating the pubs. They're sort of like, you know, they're not turning them into anything that they weren't already. There's a lot of kind of, it's like sort of a retro nostalgia flavour to the renovations, which is really, you know, sort of like embracing the whole pub culture. And I think it's sort of like, again, another way of like people sort of thinking, you know, I still want to be going out but I don't perhaps want to be spending as much money as in some of the others. And, you know, you can go and, and you know, sometimes you, you want just something simple and, and attract, you know, that, that you want a kind of comfort food. Mm. And so it's like, oh, I'll go there and I'll get a schnitzel or I'll go there and get a burger or just some good fries or whatever. And it's so it's kind of reflecting of, the, of how we are as a society in kind of both on economic terms but also I think on social cultural terms, I think, that we're kind of looking for... Because, as you were saying, it's like the, the, um, the communal aspect, the social aspect, the coming-together aspect, and those places, those more casual places, are places where you want, kind of want to be together. You know, it's sort of like if you... It's, you know, as, as good as a, a restaurant like, you know, Attica or Grossi Florentino is, they're more sort of special occasions. You're probably going to be there for, you know, four people maximum, you know, in order. But if you want to kind of get together with a gang mm-hmm. um, and sort of share some stuff and, you know, know that everybody can actually afford to be there and there's not somebody there sort of with the blood draining out of <laughs> Face the arrives. You know, it's kind of like you know this is this is kind of where we are now. Mm. I think. Is there a grape or region that you've observed is on the ascendant? I think there's. I personally, I'm having a little bit of a love affair with um, Austrian white wines at the moment, which you know can be a little expensive, but there's some good ones that, that are around in a lot of the places there. Particularly, there's a there's a great variety called Grüner Veltliner, which and in Austria. 
you know, because of the, its cooler climate, high altitudes, it's a delicacy to the grapes that, and the, to the wine that they have that it's sort of like you get, there's sort of like a little, di- there's a little bit of sweetness on the, the palate. They call it like a residual sugar, I think it's called. Uh, but then they, they kind of have this really dry snap at the end of them, which is, and it's really beautiful with um, food with a bit of, um, they work really well with food with like chilli in it or with sort of like, you know, quite intense flavours. Like you probably, you wouldn't want to eat it with a steak. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, but sort of vegetables and sort of anything with a bit of sort of, if there's kind of any kind of Asian seasoning in there, it's sort of like they're, they're beautiful yeah. ones for that. The other thing that's happening, I think, that's noteworthy in Australia is that there's a lot of Italian grape varieties being grown and made in Australia now and they're kind of, their grape varieties that come from you know, warmer climates in Italy um, you know, Fiano, Vermentino um, Arnaise, things like that um, that actually grow beautifully in Australia and I think in many ways better than a lot of the kind of classic French varieties like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and those sort of things. I think that our climate, particularly warming climate, um, it's going to mean that there's more of these wines around mm. and there's some re- really good places that are making you know, delicious versions of these. Do you have any share plate advice or observations or gripes? Um, I have gripes about people that want their own plate of food. <laughs> I think they're selfish and uptight. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but my, my one gripe about share plates is that when they go and, you know, we're going to serve these um, mussels with, you know, whatever, and they, it comes out and, there's, and they serve it in, in threes. Yes, and there's and four of there's you at the table. And they're either the, the one that are, the, most places will go, oh, yeah, we'll just add another one on there for you. Some of them go, no. Nah. Right, yes. you're doing three. Solid. And then suddenly you're doing fractions and you're yeah, in year 11 exactly. again. and suddenly you're going, I'm never coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and, of course, Gerald's Bar is... Gerald's Bar, always, always a fabulous place. And, uh, they're, you know, and they're, their wine, approach to wine there is really good. I noticed, actually, that they... I was in there the other night and they've actually got a wine list now, which were they... Well, they always had a wine list, but they've got to buy the glass list now, whereas before Gerald's used to have a system where mm. it was sort of first come, first served, and if one of the bottles that they were pouring by the glass had finished and you were the next person up wanting a glass of white wine, you could pick anything on the list to turn into the wine by the glass. But obviously they're sort of moving with what their customers want so there was a buy the glass list which I have to say was a little disappointing <laughs> <laughs> and I will be, will be sharing my straightforward. <laughs> I know, exactly, exactly uh, Well, it's tough work but someone's got to do it and you do it for us and we appreciate you doing it every uh, fortnight or so Yeah, taking the bullet for this <laughs> Michael Harden, thanks very much Thank you Melbourne's own Triple R. The Sun is the new film by writer-director Florian Zeller and the second in his trilogy on the subject of mental health following the success of 2020's The Father, starring Anthony Hopkins and which was nominated for six Academy Awards. This new drama centres on Peter, played by Hugh Jackman, his ex-wife Kate, played by Laura Dern, and Nicholas, played by our next guest. Zen McGrath, known for his work in 2015's Dig, 2016's Red Dog True Blue and ABC's Utopia, and to tell us about his major new role as The Sun in The Sun, the local actor joins us now. Zen, welcome to Breakfasts. Thanks for having me. Um, now, it's hard as an outsider to overstate how significant this opportunity must be. What's it like to live it? It's very surreal, I would say. The past 18 months for me have been a bit of a roller coaster. Um, lots of amazing things, and I'm, I'm very excited for it to all be happening. And, and I'm very excited to be here at Triple R. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, it's our pleasure. <laughs> now, tell us about this film. Uh, what about it, apart from working with the incredible cast, fascinated and intrigued you? 
Well, I'd have to say it was back when I first read the the sides, the script of the audition, um, and, I, and I initially instantly felt a resonance with the character and the script, and I sort of felt like it was a a script and a story being told by people who felt like it needed to be told, like a, everyone had a personal reason to be part of it, and that made it more meaningful to me, I would say. Um, and I, I think it was meaningful to everyone involved. It, it, everyone was sort of making it for the right reasons. Mm. Now, your character is described as, what, uh, disturbed, yeah. weird, I think, or maybe... Yeah, I, I think he doesn't fully understand what he's going through, and I think that's the point. I suppose sometimes you're not able to fully understand what's happening with yourself if you're going through a crisis or um, something concerning mental health, and that can add to the anxiety of it. Uh, and I think it's... I think it's somewhat important that we don't know exactly what's wrong with Nicholas. Mm. And where do you go as an actor to access what was required for The Sun? To prepare for the role, I I had a lot of sort of talks with the director Florian and the other cast members. Uh, They all, as I said before, had personal reasons uh, to make the film. And I think talking to them and my friends, because everyone has either been through something quite hard, existential, or knows someone close to them who's been through it. So I think talking to people around you really helped me sort of get into the headspace of the role. And reading the script enough was was, was enough to sort of get me into the emotions of it, I would say. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, I felt like I had about three months to prepare before I left, and I would have constant Zoom sessions with, with Florian, just talking about Nicholas, talking about the script, and I, th- I felt like through that I developed a sort of, sort of sense of the character to get into that emotional place. Yeah. And you get to dance with the boy from Oz. <laughs> <laughs> I do indeed. Mm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't copy my dance moves. Though, but <laughs> very good. I understand that part of the process was, was no rehearsals, is that correct, for this particular film? Yeah, um, I think Florian wanted to capture something sort of raw uh, and of the moment, stuff that would happen only the first time you ran it through. And I think that was quite interesting and quite helpful because sometimes you think a scene will go a certain way and then you start playing it and it goes in a completely different direction, which which garners a sort of authentic reaction to whatever's happening. So you find yourself surprised in some respects by your own responses to yeah, the environment? Yeah, 100%. And I guess it's a trade-off because with rehearsals, you, um, you, know, you obviously are more prepared and you're more on rails in terms of how the scene will go, but... Yeah, with without rehearsals, you might get something truly like natural and spontaneous. How do you, as an actor, prepare for that? Then going in, knowing that that's the approach of the director, do you try and kind of withhold or hold back from kind of rehearsing or st- marking through things yourself mm. before arriving on set? Well, um, one thing actually, Thorin did ask me to do because he's a playwright mm. um, was. He asked me to memorise the entire script, all my lines, throughout the whole film before I even arrived in the UK to start filming. Uh, so I knew I could basically read through the whole script uh, if my dad was reading all the other lines. Uh, so that sort of... But I, I did it without any sort of inflections in the lines or, like, deciding how I would say them. Um, mm. Sorry, what was the original question? <laughs> oh, just saying how did you approach it as an actor knowing that that was yeah. the, the director's approach? And I think... Approach. Yeah, besides doing that, I also had to sort of trust in Florian. I had to trust his vision, mm-hmm. and I'm so glad I did. Because yeah. if, especially if you're going in there 
trying not to have something set in your mind, you, you absolutely have to trust the director because mm. it's their vision. Mm. Uh, the film swirls around ideas of, I suppose, pressure and expectation as mm. well. Um, is it unfair to characterise you as coming from a line of uh, obscene overachievers? <laughs> um, yeah, very unfair, I would say. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I just think it's, it's, it's work at the end of the day. I mean, you mentioned your dad reading lines through you. Yeah. So, so can you tell us about, in your, you know, you don't live far from here, mm. the film's set in New York. Yeah. Uh, d- tell us about how an actor draws on, an upbring- draws on their upbringing right. for a role like this and if you can loop in, you know, yeah. your own story. Of course. Um, well, I, I would say that... The pandemic and COVID and all that isolation we had here in Melbourne, as you guys know, obviously, that we had one of the biggest lockdowns in Melbourne in the world. Um, I did high school. I did my last year of high school in 2020. So that was during, like, the very start of the pandemic. So I definitely drew on the isolation and that sort of came around. Uh, so that sort of felt with that kind of stuff. Me and my friends, we couldn't really see each other. You could see one person at the park, like, for, for an hour, I believe, uh, back in back in 2020 and I think it's very sort of my generation that went through that during you know a time when you're supposed to be going out there and supposed to be exploring and sort of discovering yourself and I think definitely that probably had an impact on the role that Mm. I played. It's an extraordinary performance such a captivating one and of course such, uh, as, as Daniel and Nat were alluding to, such deep themes. But apparently on set you were sort of balancing that with a little bit of levity as well. You were teaching your associate director some fake Australian slang, uh, is that yeah. correct? <laughs> well, uh, the, the full story is um, I had uh, one of the assistant directors was asking me for Australian slang. And um, I said, just say, Eshe Maba, you know, which is like, I'm sure some people out there will get it if there's some younger <laughs> listeners. Um, but she came back to me like an hour later, uh, an hour later with a you know a T, and it said Isha Baba, and I never corrected her. <laughs> I just let her think that that was what we said. <laughs> Close, um, Close enough. And I imagine she's still saying that to this day. <laughs> Good. Uh, now, the Anthony Hopkins appears in this film briefly. He was the father in the father. Now he's in the son. Mm. Uh, you're the son in the son. Does that mean you'll turn up in the third of the trilogy? Um. I mean, if Florian wants me to do that, absolutely. I will absolutely do that. Yeah. But we don't know about the mother yet. But we shall see. Yeah, right. Mm. Um, and what's been the uh, response to you and your uh, for your career and life? Because this seems like such an extraordinary role to land. Hugh Jackman was instantly attracted to the role as well. Um, so what, how does your life change now? Well, before The Sun, before I was uh, cast in this, I was at Melbourne University studying science, doing physics and engineering. Um, I was only doing the first semester, though, granted, so technically just, you know, the, the starter out of subjects. I'm not saying I'm, I was doing physics and engineering as a degree. Um, but I was definitely on the course for a science career, and I, I really still find physics interesting, but... I, I, ever since I was a kid, I made you know videos, home videos, um, YouTube videos. I tried to make, uh, and I think that was always something I loved doing, and sort of maybe, maybe ignored a bit um, as I got older, doing VCE and focusing on that. Because leading up to year twelve, acting wasn't really much in the picture anymore, uh, and I decided to focus on school to get my grades to make sure I had options. Um, but now, 
uh, things have changed, uh, and I, I realise that this is something I still love to do, uh, not just as a kid. And I think now, I'm now on this path. You know, it's sort of I'm at least taking advantage of the uh, momentum I have now. Mm. Um, and and uni is always going to be there if I wanted to go back or if I want to uh, continue studying what I was studying. Is there anything in your engineering and science brain that you use in the creative sense? Uh, I, I would say I, I also love to do 3D animation and, like, visual effects. I've been doing that since I was 10, and that's interlinked with film. I actually got into it because of a TV show I was in, uh, and I was talking to the camera operator about uh, putting muzzle flashes on my Nerf guns so I could <laughs> pretend to make an action movie at home. And I remember uh, they, they, they it sort of threw me into this world of, of like programming and visual effects and definitely using that sort of science-y engineering part of the brain maybe to create these 3D environments and 3D animations. Um, you can see on my Instagram I have a couple of, a couple of clips uh, that, I, that I've always loved to do and I think, I think that's pretty closely linked. Yeah. Mm. How many take? What's the maximum number of takes that you would do for a film like this? Oh, it really depends on the scene. I, and I remember I think the most we ever did on something was maybe 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, especially with the, the really emotional scenes where we wanted to get right, but every time I remember Florian would come up to me and ask, is it okay if we do one more? You know, is it okay? Because I guess he understood how much it takes for an actor to go there and then come back from it um, each time. But, I, I would, yeah, I would say Florian didn't make us do a million takes. We, mm. we, only, we never really passed 12, at least not for the, the small things. Yeah. And when you have exhausted yourself and you have to go again, is that... Uh, you know, is it easier than we might anticipate? Do you have to you give yourself a moment? Do you go for a walk? Or is it like, no, I'm in the moment, let's go here? I think it, it's different for every actor. I, and I also know that, like, I, I feel like it, it's the sort of a curve. Like, at the start, you're like, all right, let's go again, you know? And by the fifth time, you're like, okay, let's uh, one more time. Yeah, sure. And then, like, by the tenth time, you're, like, super exhausted <laughs> and, like, you, you know, your tears are dried out. And, <laughs> and you're um, you're absolutely through it. But... Yeah, it really depends on the scene on the day, uh, and I think, yeah. All right. Do you think you'll live around here or you're off? I'm actually moving to the UK yeah. uh, mid-year, um, so that, that, that'll be a big change. My brother's over there as well. He's also an actor, so yeah. I'll be living with him for a while. Uh, but I would definitely say Melbourne is my home, All right. and I'll be gravitating around here <laughs> for my life. <laughs> Terrific. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, good luck with the move. The new film is The Sun, directed by Florian Zeller. It opens in cinemas nationally uh, Thursday, 9th of February, and uh, we've been speaking with its star and the sun. Thank you. Of the sun, Zeller. <laughs> good on you, Zen. Triple R. Elizabeth McCarthy's here with the latest in the literature. Morning. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Nat. And good morning, Simon. Good morning. It's so nice to be here with 2023 Breakfasters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you brought an award-winning book? I certainly did. So um, the book that I'm going to be talking about this morning won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction last Thursday night. It also won the Victorian Prize for Literature, which is this... So the prize pool of the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards are the biggest prize pool for literature in this country of any of any awards in this country that are literature based so um and that is quite fitting because we are a unesco city of literature of course and um 
I also wanted to flag that something that was announced at the Victorian Prize for Literature Awards last year is that they are reinstating uh, the Children's um, Prize, Mm. which for some reason was um, abolished, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. I don't know why they would do that. Anyway, it is being reinstated and apparently that is because of Catherine Andrews, Daniel Andrews' um, partner who is a massive champion of literature in this city and in this country and you know she tweets about books that she reads and she's a passionate literature lover so apparently it was her who wanted um, this children's literature category reinstated and this is a very good thing. Getting on to the book that I'm reviewing today it is by Jessica Ow, who is a Melbourne writer and this is a novel out through Giramondo Books, who are well known for publishing um, artistically adventurous and ambitious and unusual literature, I suppose. It doesn't, um, Giramondo don't publish works that have necessarily a commercial leaning. Um, they take risks with their writers and they've published some hugely impressive books over many years now. They are a very small but mighty publishing house and it is quite fitting that Jessica Ow's novel, Cold Enough for Snow, which I'm talking about today, is living in the Giramondo stable. So this novel, it's a novella really, it is so short, I read it just in one sitting um, on Saturday, and uh, it takes place um, in Japan. A mother and a daughter who no longer live in the same city decide to go on a holiday together to Japan. Um, The trip is the daughter's idea because... um, She doesn't quite know why she wants to do this trip with her mother, but as the novel unfolds, you sort of get a sense that she wants this stronger emotional connection with her mother again. So um, it is a very sort of, um, you know, they visit lots of galleries and parks and it's a very meditative novel. There's no dialogue. It's a very interior novel told in the first person from the daughter's perspective. And um, it's very taut. It is highly disciplined. Um, I can just imagine, you know, the the amount of work that went into crafting uh, this novel. It is highly, um, yeah, as I said, highly disciplined. You just get that sense throughout reading this novel. Um, and it's, it's exploring memory and place um, and what feels like, true memories in the daughter's mind and not necessarily uh, memories that her mother can um, reinforce. And so there's sort of this grappling between the two of them of the truth of some things that happened in their family. The daughter is also meditating on the key events of her life so far that have made her the person she is. So she's reflecting on her time as in a Catholic girls' school where she won a scholarship to go to that girls' school. She's then reflecting on the time that she went to university and started studying Greeks and how... Um, Greek um, literature and, you know, ancient Greek texts and how overwhelmed she was by um, Greek stories and how flamboyant those stories are and how they're full of such vivid and often violent characters and how that was sort of such a contrast to the world in which she grew up in and such a contrast to the way that this story is told, actually, because as I said, it's very, it's a very quiet book. Um, there's not huge amounts of action. It's very much an internal dialogue that this lead character is having. 
Um, she also is reflecting on her time working in this high-end restaurant and various boundaries that customers um, overstepped with her. She's thinking about meeting her, how she met her partner and what her life ahead looks like. So it is a very contemplative novel. Um, it's it's very pensive and it's and you know as much as I've sort of couched it in you know it's disciplined it's taught it's beautiful it's mesmerising basically for me the drawback is um, there's there's not a climax that I've found satisfying and so and I've talked a bit about when I've reviewed books on the show how. Sometimes the climax can just be a, a very small emotional realisation that a character might have. And I, I cited last year Robbie Arnott's Limber Lost, which is a very quiet book. And the whole thing just took off toward the end when the lead character just has this emotional realisation to themselves. Nothing actually happens action-wise. It's just this emotional realisation. And for me, this book actually... Um, gets to a point where, to me, I feel like I wanted more, but I don't necessarily want, you know, some sort of action-packed end, but I wanted, I don't know, some kind of resolution or one of the ties being sort of brought together. It just left me a little cold. Well, when you mentioned (laughs) that, the idea that the title of the book itself is Cold Enough for Snow Mm. without implying that the snow arrives, so it almost is a huge setup in a way. Exactly. Oh, Simon, honestly. (laughs) You've just hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah. Cold Enough for Snow. And I love the fact that that title is um, just one... I love books where the title is just sort of on a sort of irrelevant sentence in the book and that's what happened. I mean, it's quite... It's just, you know, her mother says, oh, I... um, I packed mittens because I thought, you know, or gloves or something because I thought they, it might be cold enough for snow in Japan, um, which is just a lovely sort of, you know, throwaway moment in the book. Um, yeah, but I just found myself wanting more. Some even... lost luggage or something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is this moment at An the end. An upgrade at the end. <laughs> <laughs> An upgrade. Um, yeah, so... Look, it's a beautiful book and I don't want to put people off reading it because, you know, and the, Mel Cranenberg is one of the judges, our, our beloved Mel Cranenberg who used to do Backstory on Triple R. She was one of the judges and, you know, she said to me, all of us were, um, this is before I read the book, she said to me last Thursday night, Thursday night, all the judges were just unanimous, this is the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it was in, you know, a strong field. However, for me, it just, there was something I just left wanting more even though I was completely spellbound reading it. Mm. Mm. Can I um, ask a question quickly? Can you expand on a little bit of what you mean when you say disciplined? Yes. In the writing? Sorry. Because, you know, that might imply that I don't think books are disciplined enough. (laughs) You know, most books aren't disciplined enough. I just um, think that it is so – there's been such an attention that every word counts Mm -hmm. and I think in the editing process there – and, you know, this is just an assumption, but I think that when you read a book like this, you know that in the editing process there would have been a lot discarded to make this a tight yep. little number. Okay. And so, yeah, there's no sort of word wasted 
or, um, you know, and that often happens actually when you read novels. I, I certainly find where I sort of think, why was that in that novel? That should have had a tighter edit. So it's very tightly edited, okay. I think. Yeah. Thanks but for clarifying, No problems. No problems. Any other questions from the floor? It does sound <laughs> like a very uh, sort of moving story in a sense that the premise of two people who are obviously very closely related, but mm. maybe there is a little bit of a gulf of understanding between them and sometimes definitely is travel. Sp- yeah. yeah, and you definitely get this sort of um, sense of space between, distance between them. And, and yet it is a loving relationship and there's not a lot going on that sort of indicates to you a lovingness, however, because it's so restrained. But, um, but yeah, I think that, you know, because the mother's older or getting on, as they say, and, you know, she's moved out of the family home and she's now living independently somewhere else. Um, you do get a sense that, um, and I think, you know, we all have this at various times with our parents where you see signs of age and you start thinking, you know, I need to be closer because time is of the essence sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, that's definitely going on, but it's not overtly stated. In fact, nothing really is terribly overtly stated, um, except for maybe in her life when she was studying literature at university and also her work as a waitress when, you know, customers were very demanding. But it's a very restrained novel. Mm. Yeah. Maybe start with a brunch instead of the overseas trip first. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And from there. Uh, so Cold Enough for Snow. Cold and, Enough for Snow, yeah. And uh, Jessica Howe and that... Can I also mention mm. one of the wonderful things that's happened with this novel too is that so readings books who are I guess our sort of predominant independent bookseller um, in this state um, they put out you know their top 100 t- selling titles of the year at the end of each year this was in the top 10 now th- this is highly impressive for a novel that is um, you know, not particularly commercial and often, you know, bookstores, you know, if you talk to a bookseller, they're often, you know, saying, oh, yeah, people just come in and they want the barefoot investor and, you know, they want the self-help section and stuff. And the fact that this was in the top 10 for a very unusual book um, is just fantastic. So, you know, I am championing this book. I just personally found it, I wanted more and I wanted it to be more satisfying at the end. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe like travel, it's about the journey and not the destination. <laughs> uh, yes. Cold enough for snow, Jessica. Out. That publisher again? Jiramondo. Uh, Elizabeth McCarthy, thank you. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Maddie Miller is a Darug woman researcher and archaeologist who you might have caught over summer on Indigenuity, Sunday Arvos on Triple R, and talking volcanoes this morning. The research fellow in ecological knowledge of country at the University of Melbourne joins us now. Maddie, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Now, where are we going this morning? Oh, well, (laughs) I thought, you know, let's go into stories. Let's talk about science and stories uh, and how they mesh together because I think people don't really think about science as a big old story. Mm. Yeah, so I, my research at Melbourne Uni, I work with the Arthur Ryler Institute as well, is really looking at ways in which we can bring together Indigenous knowledge and Western science uh, to address really these big, wicked problems of the world, thinking of climate change, of biodiversity loss, of 
really, I guess, from an Indigenous point of view, how to care for country. Uh, and so I'm exploring stories as the way to do that, the way to bring these things together. Yeah. And, and uh, in particular, what... Uh, what stories do you want to address today? Yeah, so I thought rather than talk about uh, new stories, like let's indulge a little bit and go back in time and think (laughs) about some really old stories because this place uh, where we are in Wurundjeri country right now, um, but all across this beautiful continent, we have stories that are sort of mind-blowingly old, these really deep um, stories of of place, but at the heart of it, when you um, from a science perspective, when you break it down, they're actually deeply scientific stories. So you might have heard of stories from around Australia about uh, the way in which the ocean has changed and how at the last glacial maximum, um, you know, the sea was was much further out. The Great Barrier Reef was a hunting ground, which is, I was snorkelling up there um, last year, early last year, and sort of hard to imagine being able to walk uh, this place. But um, the mob up there have stories of that. Uh, here in Melbourne, of course, Nam, as many people would be aware, used to be, again, a big hunting ground for Bunurong mob. And Aunty Caroline has a beautiful story about the bay and how that inundated. And it wasn't an event that happened very fast. It was a slow event um, of the water coming up the bay. And so thinking about that in a deep time perspective of that actually this is a story that was built over you know, perhaps hundreds of generations of people and has persisted for many more hundreds of generations, that that um, scientific data, that that sort of observation is pretty incredible. Absolutely. Well, what uh, can you tell us about the Bay? I'm, I'm intrigued about the what uh, different ways to perceive and observe the Bay. Yeah, so I think, you know, we maybe take things a little bit for granted that the way they are now is how they the way they always were but in fact that's you know not true and uh science scientists have looked at the bay and have studied the the sea floor and have actually found ancient waterways uh but Bunurong and Wurundjeri stories and um, Palawa stories sort of remember all of those features so it's pretty incredible that the bay that we know now, which maybe is not so pleasant. I wouldn't want to, you know, um, think about what goes gets pumped into that bay. But that was, you know, a, a, a home for people and that was a, a, a place um, where people hunted, where people lived and camped, where families gathered uh, and, and that all went away. And Bunurong people um, and Aunty Caroline's story in particular, which you can find online, is... Um, really beautiful in reflecting of the role of people on the landscape and and that all of these sorts of things remind us to care for country. Mm. We're also reflecting, I suppose, on uh, natural disasters internationally at this time as well. And the, can you shed any light on it? Is it the Budgebim? Yeah. So Budgebim is an incredible place. Uh, it's just sort of in the western... Victorian volcanic fields. Uh, so Budgebim is B-U-D-J-B-I-M. Everybody always asks. Um, and that is a, um, a site 
which was formerly known as Mount Eccles, and it's a volcano that erupted somewhere between 30 and 39,000 years ago. Um, And what is really incredible, like 39,000 years ago is... That's a long time. (laughs) But Gunditjmara mob, they have stories of eyewitness accounts of that volcano erupting. Uh, And they remember that through story. And that's thousands of generations of people telling that story over and over again. So the the way in which Gunditjmara mob tell it, and um, you can go down there and um, they give tours of the site and there's an awesome cafe where you can buy eel and all sorts of wonderful foods. Um, but the way that they tell it is that the volcanic eruption is the creator being showing themselves uh, and erupting um, and spreading lava over 50 kilometres west and south, um, you know, right down to sea country. And that created these you know, really huge lava tubes and lava flows that changed country dramatically. And rather than walking away from country, Gunditjmara and their incredible uh, indigenuity, um, they created the world's oldest and one of the most sophisticated aquaculture systems. So they used those lava flows and the way in which water then changed across the site to farm eel and fish um, and live in uh, small houses across the sites um, and and take care of country that way. And so this was added to the World Heritage List in 2019. So it's pretty... Um, spectacular, really. Absolutely. Did it, the lava flow? What did it? What did it show? How? How? Can you uh, explain how it was leveraged for greater use? Yeah. So I mean, it completely changed country, uh, and so when you go down there, you can kind of see. Um, the way in which the lava has bubbled up and has created these big pockets, uh, and Gunditjmara have been able to um, manipulate those those big lava flows, the lava tubes, uh, and these big sort of, I guess they're kind of like a pool. Like it really is if you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to farm eels, I'm going to make these pools where they can grow bigger, um, and they would, Gunditjmara would make uh, these beautiful, like incredible, um, sophisticated eel traps where it would just let the small eels through. So you kind of have these pools of big fat eels and the small ones could pass in and out. Uh, And so using those natural um, lava flows and then modifying them with, um, you know, adding stone and creating stone walls and doing all of this work really did create this really sophisticated um, system. And so from an like I've got an archaeological background from an archaeological perspective we've kind of dated this sort of activity to maximum 6600 years but that's really just the limit of archaeological um, knowledge which changes all the time we're always finding older things mm. uh, and so that's sort of what's really exciting and 6600 is super old but I bet it's older yeah um, can I ask where are we, where are you Where's your attention now? What are you working on? Yeah, so I'm working on creating new stories. So taking these old stories and thinking about um, how these sites have changed in the past 200 years. So working with uh, Western science, working with traditional owners to think about the ways in which country has changed because it's changed so 
rapidly. Like this Vajbim was a change that happened, you know, 39,000 years ago. But the changes that we're seeing today in the environment and climate change, these are truly rapid changes. And we're not necessarily taking a moment to really collectively understand what that means and how that how we can move forward to heal country. Absolutely. And I guess for, we've loved hearing you on indigeneity and on the mission. And if we're able to follow, as you say, this ongoing studies, where would be a good place for us to go? Yeah, you can um, follow me on Twitter for as long as it's still around. It's uh, Miller underscore, no, Miller Maddie underscore. Um, and uh, check out the Arthur Ryla Institute website, um, post up some information on there. But yeah, I'm sort of just... On the internet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Maddie Miller, thank you so much for uh, detailing all that and we'll talk again soon. No worries, thanks. Triple R. I moved a few times during the, the lockdowns um, and that prompted me to kind of want to take stock of my possessions, my, my furniture, and maybe just kind of do a bit of a a revive, a reshape. What's the word? I, I like revive. You're sort of in, mm. imbuing your, your items with new life. Exactly. I was like, oh, I feel like a stock this... stock take of your own aesthetic. That's, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Stock take of my own aesthetic. I, feel, I think I could go for something a little bit more mature, some more neutral tones. There's a lot of colour. It's a bit hectic. You know, I'm growing up, everyone. Um, and, yeah, it's an ongoing process. I've been in this house for about a year. I haven't done much, but I'm kind of going back with the start of the year, we talked about it a bit last week, with, uh, talking about maybe wanting to dip my finger into the Marie Kondo method, even though she's given up. <laughs> well, the door's still open. Door's yeah, open. let's not open that can of worms. But the biggest issue I face is with kind of rebranding my aesthetic is that I am drowning in vintage lamps. Oh. Yeah. That sounds like a good problem to have. You'd think. I think so, so what's the matter? The matter is, well, I have too many lamps and I'm sick of them, okay, mm. because they're very <laughs> distinct lamps. And this came about because about eight to nine years ago, I impulse purchased a vintage lamp, okay, from a Fitzroy market. Um, it was quite an expensive lamp. I think it was like one of the most expensive things I owned at the time. It was like a, a 70s, like, vintage base and then someone had done the shade in this really distinct fabric with this kind of maroon and orange kind of I'm really drawn in something something spoke to you that day though and it called you it did it really drew me in I was like oh my god I love that lamp I love the colors very distinct yeah kind of mustard maroon type colors and patterns and it was a lovely local maker who'd done the who'd made the lampshade. And I was like, I just bought it on a whim. And then I walked home and that lamp continued to take over my life for the next six months because I realised that it didn't match anything mm. I owned. Mm -hmm. And the biggest issue I had was the height of the lamp, okay, height. It looks, it, the way you're describing it, with it looks like a bit of a no man's land height. A hundred percent. Okay. Here's the thing. It was too tall to be a bedside lamp mm. and too short to be a standalone lamp. <laughs> okay. And, and it didn't match anything I owned. So I went about trying to make that lamp fit into my life, into my room. I got new linen, mm. you know, I was mounting it on all different kinds of desks. I got rid of my desk. So not to throw the height of the lamp off, 
you know. I got rid of the bed. I was sleeping in the corner so I could give the lamp more room to breathe. So did it work for the lamp was the primary metric for making any decisions about interiors? I can't remember. It was a blur. It was <laughs> it was a long six months and obviously we did arrive somewhere. It's not in my room anymore but it was all I would talk about for, yeah, for six months. So It and, looks like a good size as a weapon for an intruder. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the shade would maybe crumble a bit, but, yeah, the base, 100%. Yeah. yeah, you could really knock – you could knock someone out with that. Awesome. Which is what I like to know. Well, that's what I'm looking for in a lamp, I guess. <laughs> and I didn't even know it until you yeah. brought that up. I appreciate it. But subsequently, because I talked about it so much, it became a bit of a joke. So I was gifted – two vintage lamps for my um, birthday and then I mentioned it, I talked about it in one of my comedy festival shows and on the final show my mum bought up another distinct lamp. Um, So I've got, yeah, I've got about four or five vintage lamps. I mean, you can't give them away either. Oh, interesting because I was thinking, I mean, obviously, yeah, this one lamp has kind of brought other lamps into your life. Yes. And you're talking about it as a branding issue as well. But I think this is great branding for someone who brings so much light into other people's lives. Oh, don't. That is so poetic. But it's more like on another level, it's just a bit hectic. There's like the (laughs) lamp by my bed is orange. They've all got really distinct patterns. I just kind of want something a bit more calming, especially Mm. now with this job. A lamp recently came into my life and it's a black crow. What? A a heavy black crow and in its beak is the cord. Is this a kid's lamp? (laughs) No. It's It's a a very scary kid's lamp? It is a terrifying, messy lamp. And where do you have it? Well, it's it's a bedside lamp. It is. It's, it, it is. Well, it's 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 in my life. I I see it all the time. I didn't purchase it. Does uh, make you happy? You never do. No. But well, it, you purchase one, and yeah. now you're going to get more. But crew it, lamp. it's 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 a very dominating lamp, and it's because it looks like the crow is just has just picked up the cord in its mouth. <laughs> yeah. It's. You know, it's loose. There's not any symmetry deliberately. Yeah. It's a weird thing. In another room, there's a mushroom that illuminates. Well, that, they're quite cute. Mm. The little Pretty ecological lamp system yeah. you've got going on. So I feel, yeah, you're worried that you're sort of geriatric and I'm infantile. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what about you? What's your lamp scenario? <laughs> wow, nothing so, yeah, so sort of symbolic or dramatic, unfortunately. Something kind of neutral, Bit calming. Neutral. I do enjoy sort of colour temperatures of the different lamps, maybe something a little bit warmer to kind of calm at the end of the day. Mm. Yes. But, um, That's yeah. exactly what I'm after. Yeah. I, you worried with old lamps about getting electrocuted or that's not a problem? That is definitely always a concern, I think. Yeah. I've kind of short-circuited the house a few times have since you... I've moved in. Because of the lamps? Yeah. <gasps> <gasps> I mean, I've pressed a lamp and been electrocuted and shocked to the other side of the room. <laughs> oh, no, really? Yeah. This is awful. And there's, and, but a bedside lamp is supposed to, like, it's bedside. It's supposed to be, ought calming. to be calming. Exactly, your friend. Uh, yeah. you, you're getting electrocuted. You have a crow, which I think is one of, like, the most intimidating-looking birds out yeah. there. Yeah, if I get electrocuted by my crow lamp, that is a bad way to go. <laughs> We've got a long way to go, Daniel. <laughs> Triple R.
From Zero G, Mondays, 1pm on Triple R, we're joined to talk film by voracious pop culture vulture, Megan McHugh. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. What an intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, tell us, what uh, of all the things you've been watching, what do you want to talk about this morning? So today I'm going to talk about Babylon. So it was something that had slipped under my radar and a lot of people's radars, actually, I think. It is a 2022 nostalgic Hollywood epic drama uh, directed and written by Damien Chazelle of Whiplash and La La Land fame. So it was also a bit overlooked by the awards season, I think. It only picked up a couple of Oscar nominations and none of them in acting categories or for Best Picture, which I'm here to say is a travesty. (laughs) (laughs) So what is it about? So it's about the early days of Hollywood, essentially. Uh, It's pretty chaotic, strange, rollercoaster of a film. And if you're ready to strap in for over three hours worth of film, then you can head along and I think you'll be rewarded. Uh, So it basically documents the rise and fall of some young, aspiring go-getters who just want to be part of the movie business. Uh, So it's about the excess excitement and dizzying heights of Hollywood, but of course how far you can fall as part of that is Mm. also a big theme of the film. Do you reckon it sounds just from your initial description that it could have been a TV series? I mean, I'm I'm not saying it belongs as a TV series, but if it's following lots of characters and their their arc of success or failure. Yeah, I would definitely say, while it is about those characters, it's more about the main character, Hollywood. And in which case I think Hollywood loves to make movies about itself (laughs) and movies about movies. And I think that meta snake eating his tail was kind of important for (laughs) Giselle. Um, It kind of kicks off with this really decadent, not safe for work opening act, uh, which is like this extended sequence um, that would make ancient Romans quite proud. And that's where we're introduced to the scrappy key players. Uh, So we've got Margot Robbie, who plays Nellie. She's like a Clara Bow kind of character. Diego Calva, who plays Manny. He's uh, based on a man, a real man called Rene Cardona, who became a big player in the start of Mexican cinema. And Jovan Adepo, who plays um, a jazz musician. So these are some of the characters that we follow. But it's, a, like I said, an ensemble cast that also includes Brad Pitt, Gene Smart and Catherine Waterston. So if we could get Brad Pitt on a TV show, no, I reckon exactly. that would have worked. <laughs> but, um, so got a pretty stacked cast. And I think it's important to note, too, it's set during the 1920s. So what's happening, it's kind of a key time period for movie making because Hollywood is doing the transition from silent film to the talkies. Uh, and it's just a huge shift in how they make films, and we see that. So there's the backdrop of we get to know these characters, but behind the scenes as well, and it's the studio system, it's the Hollywood hedonism and the fickle nature of fame, and it's really kind of stripped back this, like, shiny lens across all of that that we often see. Uh, So it looks great, like, the cinematography is amazing, but it's not glamorous. It's deliberately trying to be... It's a dark singing in the rain. If I was to really distill it down... (laughs) Um, And I think part of what Chazelle does best with the film and really makes it work is there's, like, this intersection of the visual image and how he syncs it with sound and music. So his other films, if you've seen those, music plays a huge role. Um, And La La Land was actually also inspired by Singing in the Rain, even though those are two very different Mm. films. Um, But sound plays a huge role here, and especially not just because we're talking about how sound got introduced into the movie-making process. That's interesting. Yeah, hearing about La La Land and now Babylon, does it feel like they're two sides of the same coin of a love? Absolutely, and a hate? absolutely. So I think what's so interesting about this, and I know you all talked about the Fablemans a bit last week, and I think it's kind of a similar contrast where it's this is also about filmmaking in the movies, but you can tell Chazelle loves movies, but I also get a sense there's like cynicism there 
and he uses these like drawn out sequences and like crazy montages to just cut through this idea of the magic of filmmaking. So instead of building it up, he kind of shows that there's challenges, there's hard work, there's blood, sweat and tears, harsh conditions that go behind the actual like on set movie making process. And then even behind that, you've got, you know, studio big wigs and all of that. So it's kind of, it's this really interesting um, and he kind of hammers this point home towards the end that it's like, you can love the movies, but you can loathe Hollywood at the same time. And mm. I think that's something really interesting that he's trying to do here and not give the Hollywood spin version of what movie making can be like. Yeah. Did The Fablemans cut its lunch <laughs> in, an, in an Oscar sense? Well, it's interesting. I think, I mean, part of maybe about Hollywood doesn't like movies about itself where it hasn't had a chance to do a PR spin. Mm. I also think the, like, runtime is daunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, this sort of falls in the bucket of, like, the house always wins. And I think at the moment people are really loving movies that are a bit more either, like, blatantly hopeful or, like, <laughs> eat the rich or, you know, mm. those are kind of the themes. And I think this is maybe doing something a bit to the side of that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a bit weird about the Oscars, to be honest. I would have thought. Is there someone in... Uh, specific you have in mind who you think would have deserved a nod for their performance? Yeah, so I think Margot Robbie has been really done dirty here. Like, to be honest, she, like, throws herself into the role. And I think one thing I wasn't expecting was it's also, like, he's going for comedy. Like, as much as it's a drama, it's also absolutely ridiculous. Like, there's visual gags, there's, like, ludicrous sequences that you're just like, what is happening? Like, and she's a huge part of that. Like she really pushes the comedy to actually work, I think. And she's obviously just giving it her all. Like, I think she's fantastic to watch in general, but here she's just kind of like totally stripped bare and just having a, you know, pretty, there's ups and downs. Like she goes along with her character. Uh, And I really think that that, could and should have been recognised. Mm. I was thinking about the opening sequence to La La Land, which was epic mm. uh, and made me ignore. I didn't mind the film, but I didn't. I wasn't on board didn't for like the opening. Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember if Whiplash had an extraordinary opening mm. sequence as well. But is this a is this a feature of the? Oh, record? absolutely. I don't know the exact timing, but it's probably twenty minutes, and then we get like the title card of Babylon, wow. you know, on mm. screen. So you're like. Oh, like the movie hasn't started yet. <laughs> I see, like right away, his show, like you'll see, like sort of in the early sequences, there's like an elephant involved. There's just, you know, all this setup that happens. Um, and yeah, I think he's a big fan of being like, this is what the movie's about. Whatever you thought it was going to be a fun ride where we'd see like the glamour of Hollywood, mm. forget, forget it. it. Forget <laughs> about it. Yeah, exactly. Also, please. No, I was just going to say really quickly with the runtime, do you yeah. think the three hours is warranted? No. Okay. <laughs> it's, um, they're just films are just getting yeah. longer and longer. And I just think it's. Yeah. It's, I don't know. He, he's obviously been taking liberties. And I think in a lot of ways, the style of it and the pace of it, it does propel it through that time. There's a whole sequence with Tobey Maguire that I could have done without. Um, <laughs> it's important to the plot, but there's, there's, it could have been trimmed. But then on the other hand, by the end of it, I'd really like gone through it. Like mm. I'd been sucked in, I'd been spat out just like the characters. Mm. And, and in a way, I feel like maybe that was part of it. It's like, 
if you like movies, you're going to like this for three hours. Yeah, I just feel like there is just, it's on the rise though, the three hour film. Someone needs to. Where have you got to be now? Why is your schedule (laughs) so slammed? I just think Well, you're taking you off your TikTok time. To the editor suite. Uh, It's just like, no, cut, cut, cut. Anyway, sorry, Simon, I stepped on one of your questions. Oh, no, not at all. I was just kind of curious because I suppose the idea, you referenced a few films, one of them, yeah, Singing in the Rain. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. Do you think this would appeal to sort of uh, historians as well? Like as a kind of revisionist history of, of film? Absolutely, yes. I think the fact, I didn't realise exactly how much of the here's how silent films are shot, here's how sound films are shot would be in it. And I thought it was really well done. And a lot of it is a counter to stuff that's in Singing in the Rain. It's a bit unfortunate in that, any, like, slight allusions that you've drawn to Singing in the Rain are, like, kind of explicitly shown to you at the end. He's like, just in case you missed it, mm-hmm. the the source material was Singing in the Rain, but this is the dark version. Um, but it's kind of okay in my eyes because I think it's he's sort of saying his message at the end as well. But I definitely think people who like Singing in the Rain, who like early Hollywood films, you know, if you're into, like, a Hail Caesar or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this is another spin on that, I think, that's, that's worth This is out. a superficial illusion in my mind, but, I mean, but the artist from over 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Which swept the Oscars but culturally feels like it's dropped off the face of the earth. Yeah. It's a bit weird, isn't it? And I think that's it. Hollywood's like, oh, it's about us. <laughs> and then they reward it and then, and then they forget about it until, you know, the next hot thing. And I think this is, oh, it's about us, but we don't like what it's saying, so let's push it. <laughs> yeah. All right, so check it out. Where can we check it out? Yeah, so it's everywhere. I looked up kind of, but it's, you know, your independence, it's at your chains, you know, Lido, Sun Theatre, Palace Cinemas, Pentry. Asta, all of that. So, yeah, check it out if it sounds of interest. Cool. We've been talking Babylon. Meg McHugh, thank you. Thank you so much. Woo! Ah, that's right. Triple R. Michael Cacklin can mean only one thing. Irvi Majumda's here. Hi, Irvi. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for that intro. <laughs> yeah. um, you have a maniacal laugh as well, Daniel. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> I, I was wondering, I've been thinking about you because mm. obviously uh, Jonathan was in here last week yeah. and he, he seemed distressed. Yeah, yeah. I've got an update, guys. Um, it's Okay, so last week my boyfriend Jonathan got on and had a public um, meltdown. <laughs> I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. All of, like my housemates and I were all laughing because like the night before um, when we told the housemates that we had um, potentially bought a house, um, he was just like really quiet and, um, <laughs> and he was like, yeah, yeah, we're really happy, it's great. And then um, like my housemates and I were talking for ages and he just like went into the bedroom and was like silent. So I was like, I think he's like freaking out. But like we looked in and um, he's like, I'm just going to bed now, it's all good. Um, <laughs> 7 p.m. Um, yeah. yeah, he says he like doesn't get stressed, but he definitely does. Um, and then the next morning he just like went and said, his feelings on air instead of um, in real life. <laughs> but I thought it was like a fresh, you know, fresh perspective on getting a place. It, it was, I was freaking out too. Um, but then over the weekend we, we saw UNAT on um, Friday night. Everyone was happy. And then Monday was the building inspection and everyone's like, it'll be fine. And we, I guess we, it's just been such a long time looking that um, we were like, it's done, it's great. And um, I went on Monday to the house and was like fully just like lying on the bed, just like acting as if I lived there. Everything was going well. And then the last minute, the building inspector said there's a major structural flaw. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, so it was that. like, we just like, you know, in those like big moments where like you're, the bells are ringing in your ears, it just felt like some bomb went off. And I was like, oh, yeah, what about that? that um and it turns out 
pretty much the wall is separating from the house. If you, and if you look closely, you can once they point it out, it's like really obvious. But um, initially, we'd been there like ten times, and it's in really good condition. So yeah, pretty much, uh, he was like, if you leave it, um, there's a risk that it could just cave in on itself. Yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> so, just cut to Jonathan Payne, the inspector, to say that. I know, <laughs> no. literally. Oh, I, I, mean, I should look into that. Um, so th- this is a process that takes place before the actual purchase. Yes. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you can opt, like you don't have to get a building inspection and they cost, they're like kind of expensive, like $700 or something. Um, so a lot of people don't do it. Um, but we were like, you know, it's an old house, but inside it's like a time capsule because it's just like this old, it's like pretty much like an old non house. Um, I don't know if that's like, um, you're allowed to say that, but it is. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, did you say seven hundred dollars? Yeah. I mean, that's nothing in the scheme of being totally. in debt for uh, hundreds and thousands. If I had moved in and the wall caved in, I would. I don't know yeah. what we do. Um, but yeah, it was a pity because this whole—I don't know if I did. I don't know if I spoke about this before, but um, it's like kind of a haunted house. Oh, great! Yeah. Uh, in, in what ways? I mean, um, if you're comfortable talking yeah, about it. Yeah. No, no. I will. Um, I'll let you guys know. So pretty much, when I went there on the first day to do the inspection, um, they—it was raining, and I was walking by myself because um, Jonathan had the car and my umbrella like flipped up. So it just like all this like stuff was happening. Like the umbrella was slipping upside down. I was sick of walking. I walk up and the house looks like a house out of like six feet under. Like um, it just all the roses were like blowing in this weird way. Mm. Um, and there's one other person at the inspection and he had like no teeth and like different coloured eyes. It just looked, he looked a bit scary, but um, we were kind of, I felt it was like weird bond. And then um, the real estate agent couldn't open the front door and she was like really exasperated and like she's like, I can't do it. Um, so I said, I'll come back later. It's fine. Did you consider going through the gap in the wall? <laughs> I'm like, don't worry about it, babe. We've got a trap door. <laughs> um, she, I know, she was like, no, everyone stay. And then the guy was like, can I have a go? And he touched the door and then he looked back like really, he was like, um, is this a deceased estate to the real estate agent? And she was like, how did you know? And he's like, I can feel the spirit still here. And um, because the house looks like it's like, you know, it's immaculate. And he's like, this was someone's pride and joy and she's just like not ready to let go yet and my my sister was like he's just saying that so that you like go away and don't um also bid on it it seems like it could have been i know but i believe in like spirits in the universe and stuff so i feel like i just feel like his eyes they were like blue and green and then i just felt like he was telling the truth and i knew that that was the case um anyway i was like really spooked out because it was like really dark and i went inside the house and everything looks like it's like 1920s um so i was like okay no ghost house for me yeah. and then on the way out the door was locked again i couldn't get out for oh. ages i was just like ah, i'm gonna like die here um anyway we're still like all right we're still interested because the market, <laughs> market is what well, can i ask what was the bedside manner uh, literally of the building inspector um, he is amazing. Like he was like really, um, he was so nice. He's like one of, so we have a really good team, like in the process. Cause I was like really sad for like a couple of days. Um, in the process, we've got like a really great team of um, people because <laughs> our broker's awesome. Um, conveyancing lawyer is amazing. He just like calls me to catch up on like my life instead of actual law stuff. Um, so, so you needed Kim Kardashian entourage. Literally, to we have an entourage. My dad is like, live. my dad literally is like the six, the guy of succession, like the main guy. <laughs> you don't have a house but you've made some great friends (laughs) (laughs) it's the journey that matters you know so Um, where are we at now then 
So yeah, we had to pretty much, um, we tried to look into it, but he's like, I can't even tell how much it's going to be to fix because you can't get under that bit of the house. Um, and yeah, so we had to pull out of the contract, but now it's back up on sale, um, open for inspection on Saturday and higher than what we were offering. Wow. So yeah, I would, yeah, it's like a, I think it's a good thing to just get a building inspection. And I've got to say, personally, I'm loving these stories as someone who will most likely never be able to buy a house. I want to hear more of this because all you see is the picture or like popping the champagne. And did you notice Jonathan have a breathe a sigh of relief or yeah, did his shoulders a, lift or he was yeah he had a pep in his step no. <laughs> <laughs> it's really really happy um no he was okay it's pretty much like me and my dad um have, it's been a good journey as well like learning lesson of um me and my dad being on the same team um for the first time in a while like since grade six um mm. so yeah we've been like really uh he's been like, teaching me a lot and he's like um in hospital at the moment being ill he's like got um an illness but he's been like fully like messaging the real estate and like on the phones and everything yeah and the week before we put the offer in um it's been two months of negotiations like it's that's the other thing about deceased estates is like the um the kids try and it's like you have to like everyone has to be in agreement so it takes ages yeah anyway my dad's like straight out of hospital and he's like take me to the house <laughs> <laughs> on the saturday before so we drove over and he's got his succession cap on and he's like let's talk <laughs> it's, just awesome. it's funny because we know casinos have callers are they called coolers where they you know if someone's on a hot winning streak they send over the cooler with terrible vibes <laughs> and maybe the real estate game has some coolers and building inspectors <laughs> yeah, well, like, yeah well yeah and also yeah hiring people to kind of loiter around and say it's haunted yeah. <laughs> literally yeah well i feel like since he said that um the last time i was at the house i was like touching the rose bushes and i swear i felt something on my arm that was like <laughs> pulling me i felt like it wasn't like a get lost it was like a stay kind of um thing and the next door next door to that place it's a really um, awesome area but next door to that place there's a um even bigger house and there's like an actual nonna living there and the one of the times we went to visit she was like outside her house like sussing us out um and she just looked at us being like are you guys related like are you she's like are you italian to me and i definitely don't look italian that's so i'm like sorry no um and she's like asked all these questions and then um i was with my parents and she's like are you married and i said uh no and then she's like oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> Maybe as a side hustle, you could do supernatural real estate listings. Yes. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter how many bedrooms or amenities, it's how many spirits. Oh, I'd yes. apply for that job as well. It's like a secret shopper, but in the real estate market, <laughs> oh like suggesting it's haunted. Uh, this is great. Maybe we can make a TV show and it's like um, every house that we inspect is um, is haunted in some way. I think so. Let's We've just started it. something. Um, yeah. Where can we catch you? Anywhere? Yes, I'm doing my um, comedy festival show in Melbourne um, on at the end of March, um, four nights only, and it was like a show that I did last year that was, uh, went really well, so I'm just doing it again. All right. Um, I yeah. saw it. It was excellent. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah thanks, I, I saw your trash. All right, go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was so great. Thank it's you. Friday, Funny Bugger, Irving Majumda. Thank you. Thanks. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of The Best Bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.